0: I know we all love a good story, whether it is a fantasy story like the Chronicles of Narnia or an historical story like Man to Brothers. We cannot live without stories. Umberto Eco once said, for man to survive, he must tell stories. I think the reason we love stories so much is because we are living in one. God is the great storyteller, and we are characters in his story. Life is a story, which means there must be a storyteller, and of course that storyteller is God. God's story includes all of history, all the events that happen in his creation, that's all the events in your life as well included in the story God is telling. And of course, because we're made in God's image, we like to tell stories ourselves. Uh, We like to tell stories too. But more than that, we cannot help but see our lives as stories. We all have this sense that my life has a story. My life takes narrative shape. If I'm getting to know you, I might ask you, tell me your story. What's what's your story? That's a way we can get to know each other. We can't help but think of our lives as they unfold. We can't help but think of them as unfolding in terms of a narrative with A plot with all kinds of twists and turns, different chapters along the way. But of course the ultimate story is God's story. History is truly God's story. History is a love story between God and his people, between Jesus and his bride. In Lord of the Rings, as Sam and Frodo are on a quest to destroy the Ring of Power, they realize they're characters in a much larger story. At one point, Sam wonders aloud, what sort of tale have we fallen into? Now, as Christians, we don't have to ask that question. We know the story we're living in. You are living inside of a very great story, the greatest story of them all. You are living inside of a great epic, the story of God and his creation, the story of Jesus and his bride, the story of Jesus and his kingdom. The missionary and theologian Leslie Newbigin once said, the way to understand human life depends on this question, what is the real story of which my life is a part? What's the story uh, 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 of which your life is a part? What story are you in? What is your part in that story? Well, again, unless you see that you're living in the Jesus and his bride story or the Jesus and his kingdom story, you're not going to understand life. You're not going to understand the way history works. You're not going to understand where things are headed, where they came from and where they're going. And again, this is the best story ever told or that could be told, the story of Jesus and his people. In this great epic, the part of the story we celebrate at Christmas is especially thrilling, and especially the way it sets up everything that comes after. I love the way Dorothy Sayers puts it. She says, the central dogma of the incarnation is that by which Christianity's relevance stands or falls. If Christ were only man, then he is irrelevant to any thought about God. If he is only God, then he is entirely irrelevant to any experience of human life. The outline of the official story, the tale of the time when God was the underdog and got beaten, When he submitted to the conditions he had laid down, and became a man like the men he had made. And the men he had made broke him and killed him. This is the dogma we find so dull. This terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. And then she says, if this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? If this story doesn't thrill you, what possibly could? She says, for what the incarnation means is this, among other things. That for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game God is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Sayers goes on from there to say, in the Christian faith, the dogma is the drama the doctrine and the, and the drama are, inesca- are inescapably linked they're, they're, they're inseparable from one another the dogma is the drama now obviously from what I've read to you here from Sayers she clearly understood that Christ's birth has got to be connected to everything else that comes after it everything else he came to do Christmas is part of a larger package you cannot separate it from the rest of the story that, came, that comes before and after But I think it's really crucial for us to understand the meaning of what's happening in this particular part of the story because I think sometimes that gets lost on us. And so for that, we turn to Luke's gospel because Luke is a master storyteller himself and Luke holds the drama and the dogma together at every point. In Luke's gospel, you see so clearly how the drama and the dogma are interconnected and inseparable Now, we're not going to go into all the details uh, here that Luke records in the first two chapters. You can maybe think of this sermon as a kind of highlight reel of Luke's Christmas story. We'll hit some of the high points, and some of this will review things that I've said in other sermons recently. But I want you to see this. And, and, And from the sections of Luke's Gospel we've read, a very clear pattern emerges. There's a very basic pattern that emerges here, and it goes like this. An angel announces Christ's conception to Mary... Mary sings a song. Jesus is born. The angels announce his birth to the shepherds. And then the the angels sing a song. So that's the basic pattern. Angelic announcement, song. Jesus' birth. Angelic announcement, song. So you can see how there's a match there. Wrapped around the event of Jesus' birth, you have two angelic announcements and you have two songs. So let's uh, let's look at this. Let's look first at the announcement of Jesus' conception. This is known as the Annunciation. The angel Gabriel, who last appeared in the book of Daniel, was sent to the city of Galilee, a kind of backwater village in Nazareth, which was a place that many people despised and viewed as insignificant and backwards. And he comes to this young woman, Mary. Mary is engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, who is a descendant of David. It's interesting that his Davidic descent is pointed out because, of course, a Davidic king has not reigned over Israel by this point for hundreds of years. Indeed, as the prophets put it, David's family tree had been all but chopped down in judgment a long, long time ago. So what does it mean to be a descendant of David in this context? Gabriel appears to Mary and tells her to rejoice because she's highly favored by God. And of course, like virtually everyone who receives an angelic visitation, she is troubled and fearful. Angels are not those chubby little babies with wings that you sometimes see. They are fearsome and terrible creatures that if you saw one, you would be scared. But Gabriel says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will be Conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, she would have heard that name Jesus as Joshua. Jesus is just the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. So we have to ask, who is Joshua? Well, Joshua, of course, is the one who succeeded Moses as the leader of Israel, as the ruler of God's people. And he's the one who led Israel into the promised land. Joshua was a great military man, a great warrior, a great fighter. He was a man of faith and action. He helped to bring the Israelites rest by conquering the Canaanites, by driving out the Canaanites so they could possess the land God had promised to them. And thus Joshua came to be understood as one of many prototypes who pointed the way to the coming seed of the woman, the Messiah. Joshua was understood to be one of many figures in the Old Testament who prefigures the Messiah. And just as Joshua crushed the head of the Canaanites and gave rest to the people of Israel, so would the Messiah. He would come to crush the head of our enemies, crush the head of the enemies of God's people, and bring in the promised rest. Joshua was a prototype of the Messiah. But not only that, not only will her son be a new Joshua, he will be a new David. This is where his Davidic connection comes in. Gabriel says he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will rule over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. These are staggering promises, and Mary finds all of this amazing. Amazing. And it's interesting to note the question she asks, a very obvious question, not the only question that could be asked, but it's a very obvious question. She says, How can this be since I don't know a man? How can I conceive a son when I am a virgin? And the angel explains, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One who is to be born to you will be called the Son of God. What child will be born to? Mary, what child will this be? What child is this? This child will not only be David's son and Mary's son, he will be God's son, the son of the Most High. Now, I don't think Mary could have understood all that's being said here. The the words, the labels, the titles that are given to her son have a range of meaning. They could refer to human kings. Of course, they could also ultimately refer to uh, the divine son. It's doubtful that Mary right at this moment understood the full incarnational implications of Gabriel's words. I think they're there. I think we need to understand them. I don't think Mary could at this point. I don't think she necessarily knew at this moment that she would have the God man in her womb. She certainly knew her son would be special because he was conceived in this miraculous way. Uh, She knew, perhaps at this point, he would be the promised Messiah. But she probably did not think, oh, I get it. The second person of the Trinity is coming to enter my womb. I don't think she thought of it in, in those terms, the way we might put it now. In fact, it would not be until after the resurrection that the followers of Christ would come to really understand that he was and is fully God and fully man, two natures in one person. I think they knew there was something very special about him. I don't think they understood the full theology and meaning of the incarnation until significantly later, even though obviously there are all kinds of clues that reveal that along the way, including here. Now there are a couple things about the virginal conception I want you to notice here. First, the virgin birth is the ultimate sign that salvation is all God's doing. I I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I want to beat this drum again because it's so important. The Savior is God's gift to the world, not the result of man's effort or man's power. He's not conceived of a man. He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. This is precisely why many have denied the virgin birth. If you go back to the, the so-called fundamentalist modernist controversy in the early 1900s when this liberal progressive movement first, to, uh, first began to invade the church, the virgin birth was one of the, the, the great doctrines that they fought over. And I think there's a reason for that, and and it always seems to play out this way. Almost any time an individual or an institution or a church begins to go in a liberal, progressive direction, the virgin birth is one of the first of the traditional Christian doctrines to go. And I think that's in part because the virgin birth is so humbling to us. It means we can only receive salvation, not achieve it. It means that our salvation is beyond the reach of natural means and processes. In order for us to be saved, it's going to take a miracle, a miracle of God's grace. It's not our power or our our goodness, it's God's power and God's grace that must bring about our salvation. In terms of Genesis 3.15, Mary will be the woman, her son will be the seed. This is the promised seed of the woman. And this seed, this son, comes into the world as a result of God's work, not man's work. He is sent by God, not created by man. That's one thing. This, this, the, the virgin birth is a picture of salvation by grace. It doesn't just picture it in it Acts. It. it shows us what it means, that our salvation is entirely the work of God's grace. But there's something else here that we need to notice. The virgin birth is the last in a long line of miraculous births among God's people this is a recurring pattern in scripture so much so that you can say there is a typology here okay advent's a a great season to brush up on typology advent you might even say is the season of typology obviously there's typology that goes with every season of the church here but I think it's especially clear in advent because in advent we do so much jumping back and forth between the old testament and the new testament going from promise to fulfillment Because that's how we got to read the Bible. Uh, There are types in the Old Testament that are brought to fulfillment in the New. Typology is the Bible's way of recording and interpreting and describing historical events. It's one of the ways that we can see how God is orchestrating all the events of history. Understand, typology is not allegory. Typology is rooted in history. It means historical persons and events foreshadow future persons and events. And events. And so there's this correspondence between what happens and how that points to what will come later. There's this correspondence, but there's also an escalation, an intensification as history moves from shadow to reality, from the type to its fulfillment. There are these recurring patterns in history that Scripture records for us, there's a kind of rhythm. To history History does repeat itself, not exactly, but there's a kind of rhythm, a kind of tune to history. So what God does in history prefigures what he will do in the future. What comes earlier in history prefigures what will come later. You have these analogies between the earlier and the later. You have the, it's almost like a metaphorical relationship where one thing is pointing to another, Understand, typology is not the opposite of a literal, historical reading of Scripture. Rather, it grows out of that historical, literal reading of Scripture. And it gets at the theological meaning of that history that is recorded for us in Scripture. Typology, therefore, does not Christianize the Old Testament. Rather, it shows us that Christ was always already there in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's always been, already was, a Christian book, a book about Christ. We just have to read it the right way to see that. In this particular case, to make sure we get the point, God repeats miraculous births again and again, generation after generation. When you start reading the book of Genesis, what happens? You meet one barren woman after another. And then God miraculously, amazingly gives that woman a child. And then it continues beyond Genesis and into other books of of the Bible, into Samuel and uh, into uh, Judges. It's there again and again and again. It seems like at every crucial moment in the biblical story, when the people need a great leader to be raised up, the woman in question who is supposed to produce that leader, that woman is barren. And so when a son is born to her, it is clear this son is born of a miracle. Born of the spirit, not of the flesh. This is true with Isaac and Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist and on and on. It seems like the whole old covenant is one long struggle to have a baby. But when Mary, the virgin, gives birth to a baby, we know that this theme, this promise is finally fulfilled. When Mary conceives by the Holy Spirit as a virgin, it means a definitive new beginning is being made. This is the ultimate miraculous birth. The virgin birth means God can and has called something new into existence, a new creation, a new humanity. So the virgin birth connects to all those miraculous births of the Old Testament and fulfills them. And Luke's account, this is very interesting, Luke's account has very specific echoes of several of those Old Covenant birth stories. So for example, there's a real clear echo here, 1 Samuel 1 and 2, where Hannah is barren and longs to give birth to a son. And finally, she miraculously gives birth to Samuel, and then what does she does to celebrate the birth of her son? She composes a song much like Mary's Magnificat. Mary's clearly presented to us as a new Hannah, and her song is a new version, an updated version, you could say, of Hannah's song. But Mary's virginal conception especially connects with one miraculous Old Testament birth in particular, and that is Sarah's birth. Remember Sarah and Abraham from the book of Genesis? Sarah had been barren for many, many years. God had promised them a son, and God had said, it's through this son born to you, Abraham and Sarah, through this son, that seed line, I will bless all the families of the earth. But there was a problem. They didn't have a son, and they kept getting older and older and older, and finally, Sarah's womb was as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead, and there was no son. And finally, they were so old that when God restated his promise in Genesis 17, Abraham fell down and laughed. So all he could do is laugh. To him, the thought of his old wife having a baby was preposterous. And so Abraham asked the question, will a son be born to a man 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? That's a lot like Mary's question to Gabriel. How can this be since I do not know a man, Mary, and Abraham both ask a question How can this happen? It's just unthinkable. It's laughable. But God says to Abraham, Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's in Genesis 18. Likewise, Gabriel tells Mary, Nothing is impossible with God. And God affirms his promises. He says, to Abraham, he says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, this is in Genesis 18, and Sarah overhears that. She overhears God restating this promise to Abraham, and she laughs at it. All she can do is laugh. She thought to herself, I am worn out, and my Lord is old. Will I now have this pleasure? To her, it sounds crazy. There's nothing more ridiculous than this old woman becoming pregnant. And so all she can do is laugh. Abraham and Sarah both laugh at God's promise. And their laughter's understandable because it does sound like a joke. Abraham's been walking around with this name, Father of a Multitude. Every time he introduces himself to a group of people, oh, what's your name? Abraham, Father of a Multitude. Well, how many kids you got? Why well, don't have any. <laughs> okay. It looks like the joke's on Abraham. Okay. God had promised Abraham and Sarah a son. And then he made them wait and wait and wait and wait some more until they were way, way past child-bearing age. And it's so interesting to think about this. The salvation of the human race is at stake in their having a son. Not because he's going to actually be the Messiah, but he's the one who will keep the Messianic line going. It's through this line that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so to put it bluntly, the future of humanity, the salvation of the world, is at stake in a 90-year-old woman getting pregnant. How would you like that? those odds? The salvation of the world hinging on this. It just, it sounds ridiculous, staking the future of the world on a barren, over-the-hill couple getting pregnant. But then the child comes, and they name the child Isaac, which means laughter. Because Abraham and Sarah had both laughed, and their laughter of disbelief now turns into the laughter of joy because God has made good on his promise. That laughter they had because it sounded so ridiculous is now the laughter of joy because God has done it. And because Isaac is born, God's promise of blessing the world through Abraham's seed stays alive. The promise, the dream, the hope stays alive. See, as always, God gets the last laugh. Indeed, God's last laugh comes with Mary, the final seed of the woman. The final seed of the woman will be born to the virgin Mary. And it's interesting to look at Luke's Gospel. We didn't read enough to see all of this, but if you read Luke 1 and 2, when, Je- when the birth of Jesus is announced and then when he's actually born, there is this explosion of laughter and joy. I've I've joked before that Luke's gospel is really a musical, the opening chapters, because it just kind of alternates back and forth between stories and songs. Well, it's just full of singing and laughter and joy. You know, if you read those first two chapters of Luke's gospel, it's just joy stacked on top of joy, on top of joy. The joy is everywhere. It just jumps off the page at you. When Mary hears about this, that she's going to conceive this child by the Holy Spirit, all she can do is break out in joyous song. We know that song as the Magnificat. And it begins with these words. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. She's full of joy. She's full uh, of laughter. Mary's laughing. Mary is rejoicing. And now, of course, we can share in that laughter and joy as well. The joy of Jesus' birth is the joy of humanity's rebirth. After Isaac was born, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And we laugh all the more over the greater Sarah who gave birth to a greater Isaac. And that is why this season, the Advent and Christmas season, is so full of joy. When you hear the good news of this birth, a virgin who gave birth to a baby boy who is not only fully human, but fully God, well, that's just got to bring a smile to your face. Especially when you consider the rest of the story, like where he's born and where he's laid after his birth. In fact, let's jump ahead here. Jump ahead from Gabriel's visit to Jesus' birth. Traditionally, the Annunciation is dated March 25th. That's when Jesus was conceived. And so December 25th, nine months later, that's when Jesus was born. Just a side note here, just a a note on this. Contrary to what you sometimes hear, Christians did not choose December 25th as the date to celebrate Jesus' birthday because it was already a big pagan holiday. Actually, that came later on. Pagans started a, a December festival much later as a way of competing with the, Christ, with the, with the Christmas celebration that Christians had already established. I mean, it's about as far back as we can trace, Christians have been celebrating Christmas. Christmas. We can't say with absolute certainty that Jesus was born on December 25th. The Bible doesn't actually tell us that, but it seems very likely. Symbolically, it certainly makes sense. December 25th is close to the winter solstice. You notice how the days are getting shorter and shorter. It's getting darker and darker. It is close to the darkest day of the year. And that is because Jesus enters into the darkness, the darkness of winter, when everything is dreary and bleak but also when the sun is just beginning its journey back to bring ever greater light and radiance and warmth. Symbolically, that's what's happening when Jesus is born. And the prophets even described it that way, like in Malachi 4, describes the coming of the the, the sun, the the, the seed of the woman into the world, the coming of the Messiah, as the rising of the sun. It's like the sun of righteousness. The light's going to be increasing. The warmth and the radiance is going to be increasing. So symbolically, it makes a lot of sense to celebrate the birth of Jesus in the darkest time of the year. But also historically, and I won't go into all the details here, but when you look at the chronological data we have, such as when John the Baptist was conceived and what that means for the timing of Jesus' conception, Jesus was almost certainly conceived around the spring equinox and born around the winter equinox. March 25th, December 25th, those are the dates, the traditional dates the church has always used. Now Luke gives us several key details here as we get into chapter 2. He tells us who was reigning in the Roman Empire. He gives us the, the historical and political coordinates we need to understand the context. He tells us about the census decree which forced Joseph to take his pregnant bride to Bethlehem, the city of David, to register. That's just like a politician, right? To pass a decree that makes a pregnant woman travel a long journey it's just this the kind of crazy stuff we're used to politicians doing. But what you really see here is God's sovereignty. It's not Caesar's decree that's determining history. It's God's decree. Micah had prophesied centuries before that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So the decree of Caesar is God's way of getting Mary to the right place, to the right birthplace, so Jesus can be born in a way that fulfills that prophecy. We know how the story goes. When they got there, there was no room in the guest room of the house. That's actually what is referred to at the end of verse 7. It's not a commercial inn like a hotel. It's a house. And there may have been other relatives gathered in the house because of the census. Perhaps because Mary was pregnant out of wedlock. She was not all that welcome in the house. Whatever the case, Joseph and Mary and their baby to be born are relegated to the place where they keep the animals. Kind of like, a, a, like we might think of a garage. They would have um, rooms tacked on that could serve as guest rooms, but would also be places where they would put their domesticated animals up at night. And so when Jesus is born, he is placed in a manger, the place where domesticated animals would feed. But again, we see how perfectly appropriate this is. Jesus came to be the Lamb of God. And so this is a fitting place for him to be born. Jesus came to be the bread that has come down from heaven. So it's fitting for him to be laid in a feeding trough. That night there were some shepherds out feeding their flocks. While King David had been a shepherd and the work of shepherds served as a helpful metaphor for the work of Israel's kings and priests, shepherds were really not looked upon very favorably in those days. But what happens to these shepherds? This is the most interesting part of the story to me. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appears, and the glory of the Lord shines all around them. And as angels always do, the angel says, do not be afraid, for I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for all people. And the angel announces Christ's birth. And then suddenly, a heavenly host, a whole army of angels, an angelic choir breaks out singing glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. Now what's happening here? How should we understand this? Well, think about this. What did every ancient Israelite want more than anything else? What was the ultimate dream and desire of every ancient Israelite? It was to go into the most holy place. Because that's where the glory of God was located. If you could get into the most holy place, the glory of God would shine upon you and all about you. You would be able to bask in the light and radiance of God's glory. The psalmist again and again expresses this desire to behold God in his glory, to behold the glory of God in the most holy place. David expresses this desire in Psalm 27. He says, one thing I desire, to dwell in the house of the Lord, to behold the beauty, or we could say the glory of the Lord in his temple. What does David want? He wants to get into the temple, into the most holy place. He wants to behold the glory of the Lord. Of course, the most holy place in the temple was an earthly copy of God's heavenly throne room. And just as a veil separated the most holy place on earth, so a heavenly veil separated the true sanctuary from earth. Remember those veils in the tabernacle and the temple that had images of of, of angels, of cherubim stitched on them. The old covenant Israelite wanted to behold God's glory, but it was inaccessible to him. He was shut out of God's sanctuary. And God's sanctuary was guarded by angels. But now what happens to these shepherds? The heavens are open. The heavenly sanctuary is open. The angelic guardians open up the sanctuary so the glory of the Lord can be seen. So the glory of the Lord shines on these shepherds. It's like these shepherds suddenly find themselves in the heart of the temple. This is a a temple-like environment, a most holy place-like environment. And they get to be Behold the Shekinah glory of the Lord. Heaven is opened to them. It's like these shepherds suddenly become priests who are given a peek behind the heavenly veil into the very sanctuary of God. And why, we might ask, is this happening? Well, this happens because Jesus' birth signals a real shift. It shows us what's taking place, what Jesus came to do. The heavenly sanctuary is going to be open to the people of God. Heaven and earth are going to be made one. God will no longer keep his people at an arm's length. Rather, he will invite us into the deepest possible communion and fellowship with him. Inside the veil, in that most holy place, the book of Hebrews, goes at great length, uh, talks at great length about this very truth, how we now have access to the heavenly sanctuary. Now, in the book of Hebrews, it's interesting, it especially connects this access to the heavenly sanctuary with Christ's death on the cross. When his body was torn on the cross, the veil in the temple was torn. But it's very interesting to me, there are a lot of traditional Advent and Christmas Hymns that connect the opening of heaven to us with Christ's birth. Let me give you a couple examples of this. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel has this line, Key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. He comes into the world to open heaven to us. Or good Christian men rejoice. He hath opened heaven's door. That's what Jesus came to do. To open heaven to us. And I think Luke is making that same point here. Luke is also showing that at Jesus' birth, heaven begins to be open to the sons of men. And really that's happening because Jesus' birth contains his death. We talked about foreshadowing already. Well, just inside of Luke's gospel, Jesus' birth foreshadows his death. All kinds of connections between the beginning of Luke's gospel and the end of Luke's gospel. So, for example, at his birth, Jesus is wrapped in cloths. Well, he's going to be wrapped in cloths again in his death. He was born of a virgin. And after his death, he is buried in a tomb in which no one had been lain, a virgin tomb. He goes from virgin womb to virgin tomb. That's the trajectory of Luke's gospel. There are all these parallels and correspondences in Luke's gospel between Jesus' birth and his death. And this is because at Bethlehem and at Calvary, those are the two places where we most clearly see the humility and love of God on display in Jesus. You really want to understand who Jesus is. You look at Bethlehem and you look at Calvary. You look at his birth and you look at his death. Theologian Donald MacLeod says every moment in the journey from Bethlehem to Calvary was chosen by Jesus to display his love and humility. It's all on a line. This is what it's all about. This is what it's all about. Now what does this story mean for us? Let me wrap this up in this way. We can look at the reason for Christ's coming in a lot of different ways. Christ comes that he might meet us where we are. And his coming changes history, but it also changes us. If you today came here and you are struggling with sin, some kind of sin in your life that you cannot shake, you need to know, as 1 John says, Jesus appeared in the world to destroy the works of the devil He came to give you victory over that sin. That's why he was born into the world. If you're struggling with feeling guilty, no, he came to forgive and save sinners. He said, I don't come for the righteous, I came for sinners. If you're struggling with feelings of shame, know as Hebrews 2 says, he came to bring many sons to glory. Glory is the opposite of shame. He replaces your shame with glory. If you're struggling with worry, know that Jesus came into the world to bear your burdens to take care of your cares. If you're feeling weak, know that Jesus is an infinitely strong warrior who fights on your behalf. If you're struggling with temptation, know he came into this world that he might sympathize with us so he can empower us to fight and overcome those temptations. If you're struggling with loneliness, know that he came into the world to bring you into the communion of the saints, to give you family as a child of the Heavenly Father. If you are hopeless, no, he came into the world to give you an unshakable hope, joy unspeakable, and a peace that passes understanding. This is the story we're living in. This is the way our story goes. It is the whole business of the church to tell this story, to believe this story, to live out the implications of the story. Whoever tells the best story eventually wins. And Christians have the best story of them all. Our story can beat all the other stories out there, all its competitors, all its rivals. Jared Tolkien once said, the gospel contains a story of a larger kind that embraces the essence of the fairy tales we all love. He says the gospel is fairy tale made fact. It is legend turned into history. It is myth made real. It is fantasy come to life. He says it is the gospel that sanctifies the hope of the happy ending. It is the gospel that validates our craving for resolution, for good to triumph over evil, for love to conquer all. The world is constantly trying to disconnect what Christmas is from all of that, to disconnect Christmas from the historical event of Christ's birth and the theological mystery of the Incarnation. The world wants to keep Christmas but do away with Christ. They don't want the dogma or the drama. And so in the world's eyes, Christmas becomes a a symbol of something sweet and happy and universal. It becomes a, a, a way of celebrating generic family values or a way of celebrating the generosity of the human spirit or some other humanitarian nonsense. No, that's not what Christmas is. Either God became man, that's a historical fact, either that is true, and that's worth celebrating, or Christmas is a sham, and there's nothing underneath the celebration to undergird it. See, Christmas is about a story, not an idea. It's about events, not feelings. Ultimately, it's about a person. It's about the God-man who entered into this world, who lived and walked on this very earth, and then who suffered and died in our place. That's what Christmas is about, the person of Jesus and what he did in history. And so Christmas makes exclusive claims for Jesus, claims about who he is and what he has done, claims that Jesus is the only Lord and Savior. He is the only way to the Father, the only way of salvation. You don't get to imagine Christmas to be anything you want. It cannot be privatized or sentimentalized. No, the meaning of Christmas is found right here. The dogma is the drama, and the drama is the dogma. The meaning of Christmas is found right here in the event of the incarnation and nowhere else. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.